a passage we feel the Lord leading us towards and then work our way expositionally through that. Uh, but we have a few weeks here in between our last series and the next one. And during these times, we have a chance to highlight either texts or ideas or topics that we feel are important for the life of the church, the life specifically of Redeemer. And so we're thankful for these opportunities to do so. Um, Pastor Adam has been working through the Theological Covenants, and that's been a really good series for us. There's one sermon left in that. We will finish that up next week, Um, a couple other sermons, and then we will be into Genesis. But for now, we are in Titus chapter 2, you heard read for you. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. You have 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and really with Titus, what we have is laid out for us by the Apostle Paul, what should happen in the life and thought of the church. It is really a a guidebook, a rule for church life. What it means to be the church, what what is, is at stake in the life of the church. And so it begins really by looking at the administration and leadership of the church. And there's that call for elders and what they are to carry out and what are to be their qualities and their qualifications. And it's a daunting and high call, especially... Uh, for those whom the Lord's called into that sort of service. And so it, it works through elders and elder life. And then it kind of comes in into the doctrine of the church, and that central and at the heart of the church should be sound doctrine. It, it really should be the pulse, the heartbeat of what drives the church is sound doctrine, good doctrine, and how the church should protect it, and the church should proclaim it, and its leadership should protect it and proclaim it. Then it kind of shifts into false teaching and how it needs to be guarded against false teaching, and that needs to be taken seriously. Then as you come to chapter 2, it sort of transitions then into more specifically relationships and life within the church and how those works, and it speaks to uh, to the more mature, the older men, the older women in the church, and what their role is to be and how they are to care for some of the younger and how they are to function. And then it speaks to the younger generation, the young younger men and women of the church and how they are to act and how, how they are to treat those who are older than them. And, and then it speaks further on to those in authority, those under authority. So it's basically it takes relationships that we see in society and see in culture and then lays out how should those function, though, in the life of the church, in its own little society of the church, a city within a city. How should we be functioning What is the life, the thought, the heartbeat of the church to look like? Then when he comes to the passage that we're in today, by the end of chapter 2, he takes a step back and sort of lays out a few things that really should guide all Christian conduct of the church corporately and of individual Christians. It's interesting with Paul as he works through the New Testament. We haven't done a New Testament epistle for a while, but typically Paul's method of writing and teaching in the New Testament is he he begins his book, his letter, with a bunch of indicatives or a bunch of propositional statements and truths about who God is and about the accomplishments of Christ. And so he builds that, and then he moves from that indicative into imperative. Sometimes we transition with a prayer or something like that, and the imperatives are simply then, okay, what does it mean for you in your life now? What is the the outcome in your life? What should be the commandments, the instruction for you? And so you hear it explained different ways, maybe doctrine, 
and duty or doctrine and doxology or faith and practice and how those fit together. Titus works a little differently in that up through the first two chapters, it's mainly imperatives. And now he kind of takes a step back and gives us these statements, these indicatives and imperatives all in one little section here. And basically, the, the point of the sermon, the point of this passage is that in this age, between the appearings of Christ, we are to live a godly life. Simple enough (laughs) on one level, incredibly hard on another. The appearings of Christ kind of set a marker for us time-wise in that you have the first appearing of Christ, as mentioned there in verse 11, the second appearing in verse 13. You have first appearing would be his incarnation, would be Christmas, Advent. The second one will be his second appearing, the hope of his glorious return. And it sets kind of the marker for this present age. We've talked a lot about it. We talked a lot about it through Luke, of living in this dual age, the ages to come, inaugurated by the coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdom here and present, and yet not fully consummated yet until the return of Jesus Christ. So how do we live then in between the appearings of Jesus Christ? We are to live a godly life. And not only does it make the markers, but it also serves the appearings of Christ as kind of the foundation, the motivation, the design for living a godly life. So as we go through Titus, as it binds doctrine and duty, as it binds faith and practice so closely, we see that a godly life is directly tied, inseparably tied, to the design of redemption. To the gospel. That is the purpose of God in sending his son. Part of that design, you can't get out of it, is an obedient, godly life. It's also inseparably tied to our identity as a child of God. Is a godly life. And finally, it's inescapably tied again to our hope of his return and our final salvation that we are waiting or welcoming, as it would say, the return of Jesus Christ. So again, so you don't miss it, the call to God the living is not an optional call, but is inescapably tied to the purpose of God and the accomplishments of Christ. That is the design of redemption, is to make you train you to be a godly person. It is inseparably tied to our identity as a child of God, inseparably joined to our hope in the return of Christ and our final salvation. So let's now just look simply here at the passage. First, we see in verse 11, godly living is grounded in the first appearance of Christ. That godly living is grounded in the first appearance of Christ. It's simply stated, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. <clears throat> As it's speaking there, it's going to speak to the incarnation in the sense that the grace of God that's appearing is Jesus Christ. It is a person. It is Christ who has appeared. To, to emphasize this point, so we don't be mistaken, I, and when we're talking about grace has appeared, the word appeared there, the Greek word is similar to the word epiphany. It sounds like it in Greek kind of. So that idea, it is to, to illumine, to show light, to, to make known. 
as we think about it, as we've been looking at the covenant and the covenant of grace, it's not as if grace was nowhere to be found in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Christ. We know that's not true. Creation itself is, is wrapped up as a gracious act from God. In the covenantal structure, we've seen that that grace entered Genesis 3.15 with that promise of one who would come and crush the serpent, a son who would come to deliver us. And so we see that, that grace has been, has been apparent and is alive and well through the Old Testament. But we come to the New Testament, it has the idea of, of illuminating or shining a light. This past week, we were in Michigan doing a job for our father-in-law. And so each morning, we'd get up early to start. And we were staying at my in-law's house, so my whole family was in a bedroom. So it was my wife, myself, our son, our daughter, our dog. We're all in a bedroom together. The alarm goes off pretty early. Everyone else is sleeping. still pretty dark out. The, the shades are drawn. So I'm trying to, as carefully as I can, wake up, make my way through an unfamiliar bedroom that has children littered here and there, find my bag, pull out whatever I'm going to wear for the day, and then around the corner is a bathroom. So I just need to get all of that and make it to the bathroom. So I'm feeling my way. I grab my stuff, get around, in the bathroom, shut the door. Now I know I'm not going to wake anyone up. I can flip on the light. And I, now I see clearly what I have, which is Calvin's shirt, which isn't going to work for me. But <laughs> anyway, I, I can now see clearly. And that's the idea. It's not that the furniture and the, the clothes and the bags, that all that wasn't there until I turned the light on. It was there and in place. But when the light comes on, now it's, okay, now it makes sense. Now I see it more clearly. And we would say the same thing about Jesus Christ and that grace is that it's, it's obviously there and it's apparent in some ways, but it's, it's a darker and a more shadowy and a more uh, prophetic promise type of way. But in Christ, now it's clear and bright. The light is on. And it has illumined for us the grace of God. And so in the first appearing, that is what we have. And then it says, what then, in the syntax of this one long sentence that we're dealing with today, the grace of God has appeared and it has done three things. And kind of each one is a sub-point of the next. The first it has done, it is bringing salvation. Underneath that we see it is training us in godliness. And underneath that is making a people who are waiting or anticipating or welcoming the second return of Jesus Christ. You see what's happening here is in the very design of redemption, the very design of sending Jesus Christ is to make you a godly person, is a godly life. You can't pull that piece out and just kind of get the redemption and the doctrine of justification and those things that we love and we treasure and we cherish, but, but pull out th- that command to a godly life. We'll look more specifically what that means. But it's A godly life is first renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly lusts and desires and living self-controlled, upright, a temperate life. To not take that part seriously is to deny the design of the gospel. That is why, that is part of why Christ came. Calvin, in his commentary on Titus, says, The appearance of Christ teaches us the design of redemption, which is shown to be a godly and an upright life. 
it's not like a, a possible tack-on to salvation. He brings salvation, and then there's a bunch of commands. You who are really serious might listen to them. The rest of you don't worry about it. No, it's this is his redemptive plan. Verse 14 continues, makes it even uh, more clear for us as he returns to it. The end of verse 13, speaking of Jesus Christ, our Savior, then in verse 14, this Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Why? In order to. Why did he give himself for us? In order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the purpose. This is the design. It goes beyond just saving. But to create a people who are holy, who are upright, who are godly. It's easy to come and to celebrate the gospel, and we sing about it and we rehearse it, but to deny part of its design and call in our life of making us godly. When we started Calvin Club several years ago, we bought those, the institutes, Calvin's institutes. And I think, I can't remember the exact number, but I think we ordered like 22, 24 copies of the institutes. The first time, we had like 20-some people. Needless to say, there's a lot less now. Um, but we had all those copies of the institutes. And it's been interesting to see, I don't know, maybe if you're one of the guys who ordered them, if you can even think, where are those copies? What are they being used for? So I'm going to, you know, at your expense, here's a little a joke. There was a family who moved away, and when they were moving, they had some furniture they didn't use. So they had a couch and a cabinet, like a filing cabinet, in good shape. They didn't use them, so they wanted to give them away. I was there helping them, and he's like, this cabinet, I never use it. It's just full of junk. We don't know. We don't use. A bunch of loose papers. Well, guess what the paperweights <laughs> were holding all that junk down that no one ever used? There's Calvin's Institutes, Volume 1, Volume 2, just sitting there. Um, or another person's house, and, you know, they needed their TV or their monitor up just like another four to six inches. You know, it was just the right height. Calvin's Institute got that up right where they needed it. I've seen them in a trunk, and I I can't talk. Mine sat in my car for a long time, so, you know, we're we're all guilty of it. And whatever, you bought them. If you want to use them, not use them. It's the Institute's, not the end of the world. But... Just buying them, if you are always talking and celebrating about how you own the institutes, but your design for them was just like a paperweight for your junk mail, you're not using them what they're designed for. It would be stupid for you to act like the institutes are the most important thing to you. I say that about to make a point about the gospel because we have this gift, the gospel. Jesus Christ has come. He's come as a baby. He's offered himself up. He's given himself for us. And we are celebrating these facts. And yet the very design of it is to create a people who are godly and zealous for good works. If we're celebrating all of this, but just totally disregarding what the design of the gospel is, you realize how hypocritical and fruitless that is to stand and to proclaim, to sing the gospel, and yet deny its design in your life. Again, I'll make caveats later. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm talking about striving to live a godly life. One more Calvin quote, since we're talking about Calvin some this morning. 
Redemption ought to hold the place of instruction to us to regulate our lives as well. The manifestation of the grace of God unavoidably carries along with it exhortation to a holy life. Second point then, godly living is grounded in the second appearance of Christ. Godly living grounded in the second appearance of Christ. Or you could say that it is grounded in glory or grounded in hope of glory. That is the, the waiting for, the reality of the return of Jesus Christ should motivate and ground a life of godliness. You know how that works. I remember in sixth grade, I did something really stupid. It wasn't like, like incredibly terrible, but something stupid at school. And I knew it was going to come, eventually come around and I would get in trouble for it. And it took a while for the teacher and the principal and everyone to meet and contact my parents. But as soon as it happened, I remember getting home in the afternoon and the phone ringing. That was back when there was like a home phone, you know. The phone ringing and my heart just sinking. And I wanted to be, like, out of sight, but close enough I could hear how my mom was reacting. And it went on for a couple days until, sure enough, the phone conversation came, and I could tell, "Uh uh-oh, it's caught up with me. I was not in any way eagerly anticipating or welcoming the conversation of my principal with my mom. You know how that is true in your own life. If you're not living now as God's possession, with him as king, fighting sin, striving for godliness, you're probably not also anticipating and welcoming the return of Christ. If your heart is given to to lust and to immorality and to uh, lying or whatever is inappropriate that, that you just, you've given your heart to, then right now you're not living as Christ is your treasure. With, his, with him is glorious. So his return is not going to be a great treasure for you. His return is not going to be that glorious for you. You're not welcoming it because you're not living now in the beauty and the reality of Christ's return. This is why we, a big reason why we worship the means of grace. Because living now in such a way that demonstrates kingdom quality and characteristics, in such a way that strives for godliness and holiness, it means that we look backwards. It means that we look back at grace demonstrated. We look back at the appearing of grace. It also means we look forward, that that is our hope, that that is our treasure, that there's more than just now. That the kingdom and this this dual citizenship, the reality is is that our our citizenship belongs to the king, belongs in that kingdom, belongs in heaven. So when he comes, it's consummated. And instead of giving ourselves totally to the here and now, because we're not looking backwards at grace, we're not looking forward in glory, we're not motivated by gratitude for what Christ has done and for hope in the reality of what our future will be. And so there's this call to godly living, and it's surrounded by these markers that give us our present age. And it is the foundation and it is motivation for godly living. There needs to be that look backwards and that look forwards, because it is the very design of redemption is that we would live godly lives. So with all that said, we'll just finish them by looking at godly living. Of holiness. 
I think I, I want to do it by just setting up what I think are, are maybe five barriers to why we sometimes lack courage to preach on holiness, why we sometimes as Christians don't feel it's important or it's the one piece of our Christian life we're just allowed out of. <clears throat> because I think that is the case, is that more and more holiness is just thought of as like an odd add-on that some people strive for. But for the most part, we love our doctrine, we love one another, but an idea of striving for holiness just isn't part of who we are as Christians. I think the same is true is, is in, in circles in churches like ours. It's not just like, oh, the bad churches, the bad people out there. I'm talking about us bad people in here. So here are my reasons. I know this, there, you probably could think of others, but I think if we can at least identify these together, it will help in us being serious about pursuing godly living or holiness. In the past, I think it was all too common to equate holiness with staying away from just a few taboo things. In kind of the revivalist era in America, which wasn't that long ago, which has shaped much of evangelicalism today, and it's kind of a surrender type of culture or a feelings type of culture. And so it was, you know, if you don't smoke, if you don't drink, if you don't go to the movies, if, you know, whatever your, like, three or four standards were, this is holiness, had nothing to do with the heart, nothing to do with, with sort of what you're doing. It's just stay away from these taboo items. As if that bottle of beer is like literally a moral thing. There's, there's sin in that bottle. Or walking in through a movie theater would be like you're opening the doors and stepping into sin. And it was sort of treated this, this weird way. And it has such a, a bad legalistic upside-down way of looking at the gospel and grace and what it does. But instead, I think we've reacted to it, and like typically we swing too far. And so now, all of a sudden, speaking about being wise or moderate in your alcohol, or to speaking about strongly on sexual purity and not living an immoral lifestyle... Uh, it's like that all of a sudden seems extreme for any sort of call to holiness in that way. Because we think, you know, you're going to be accused of being a legalist. Or worse, a fundamentalist. If you swing all the way over here and you start giving standards or some sort of, of guidelines that the scripture would lay out. I think a second reason, especially in culture today, is that to live a godly life, pursue holiness, means that there are distinctions between right and wrong. And when you start making those distinctions, you start appearing judgmental and intolerant. And there's nothing worse today than to be labeled intolerant. And so we've done a bad job in the past about loving the sinner and caring for the sin while at the same time not condoning and not joining in and, and hating the sin. And so as to make up for it, we've just sort of swung all the way where we just won't say anything about anything and sort of just, because we can't be thought of as judgmental or intolerant. I think 
misunderstandings, third, of, of our own theology has caused some of it. That we want to be gospel-centered people. Of course we do. And if you start talking about holiness or working hard at your salvation, it seems almost to undermine being gospel-centered. You know, that it's grace and grace alone. Yes. And so just leave it at that. And there's sort of a misunderstanding that to speak about holiness or speak about godly living undermines this idea of being gospel-centered. I think another misunderstanding, the fourth one, I'm almost done with these, the fourth one, another misunderstanding of our own theology is that, Pastor Adam and I were just talking about this this past week, is that you, you kind of have, you don't allow the Bible to speak in a full-orbed way. And I think especially Reformed and Reformed pastors have a tendency to do this, to be overly reductionistic. That is to say, for an example, when you speak about God's love, that if you're going to read in the Bible about God's love, every time it says God's love, it can only mean one thing, and that's it. But that's just not true. You think if I'm talking to you, I could say, I've probably said, I love my wife, I love this church, I love West Virginia Mountaineers, I love, a, oh, I love me a Chipotle burrito. Okay, there's four things. Do I love it, all of those in the same way? Of course not. Would I take a bullet for the West Virginia Mountaineers? No, unless you're playing Texas Tech, right? So... <clears throat> So you speak about it, and you allow the Bible to, to speak about it. D.A. Carson wrote a book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, that speaks, I think, in five ways about the love of God and how the Bible speaks about it. The same thing is true when it comes to speaking about good works or righteousness or holiness. As we become so narrow in the way we understand righteousness that, yes, I believe, we believe with all our heart, justification by faith alone. There is nothing you can do to merit God's favor. You cannot be righteous enough in any way to even add to satisfying God's wrath against sin. But every time it talks about being upright or doing something good, not all of that has to be included. Does that make sense? That, so in, in Scripture, God calls people righteous that they were blameless to the law, they were righteous. And he's not speaking about they have, they're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and his obedience and so... But he's just saying they are an upright person. They do things that please God. Again, not judiciously satisfy his wrath and merit God's favor, but they do things that please God. They are obedient. They do good works. I think sometimes we're so scared to acknowledge that it becomes confusing and it becomes sort of a wall against striving for righteousness or uprightness or to do good works because it's, well, if you say that, then you're undermining justification by faith alone. No, it speaks different ways about righteousness, about uprightness. And then it has kind of two factors that bleed out. It's kind of just a, like, I know I'm depraved, I'm a bad person, so everything I do is bad. End of story. And that you, you don't even have sort of that desire or take seriously the command or think it's even possible that obedience and uprightness is possible. Nothing I do can please God. It, yes, it can. Again, 
not in a meritoriously saving type of way. And not apart from grace. And, and we make all these caveats, but we make them so much that we just leave out striving for uprightness. You can see it, and you have notice how like Christians have the hardest time taking a compliment. Where like I come to Ian, I'm like, hey, good job on the guitar today. And he's like, well, I can't do anything good. I'm, you know, it's just sort of this backpedaling back, and you're like, man, I'm sorry I said anything. Like, you're terrible. I agree, whatever. Um, (laughs) And it's like, where's you out? And again, I'm not saying Ian has to be like, yeah, you know it, I'm the man. But he can be like, okay, he practiced, he's learned that, he's using his talents to serve the church. The Lord's pleased with that. That's a good thing, a good work. I can say, good job. Thank you. Does it mean that he was without any sort of mixed motivation or pride? No, but the Lord, even in his best works, the Lord is forgiving and pleased. And I think this sort of reductionistic idea sometimes backs us off of doing good works, of striving for uprightness. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, says it, better than I do. He says, it is terribly confusing when people say that the only righteousness that has any value is the imputed righteousness of Christ. I agree that justification is not grounded on any of our righteousness, but only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But sometimes people are careless and speak despairingly of all human righteousness as if there were no such thing that pleased God. They often cite um, from Isaiah 64, righteousness is as filthy rags. And he goes on to say, in some ways it's true. It's also a bit of a misunderstanding to talk about everything good you do is worthless and a filthy rag. If it comes to empty sacrifices offered to God to gain merit, yes. As he goes on, he says, but that does not mean that God does not produce in those justified people an experiential righteousness that is not filthy rags. In fact, he does. And this righteousness is precious to God and is required, not as the ground of our justification, which is the righteousness of Christ only, but as an evidence of our being truly justified children of God. And that is why he commands it. And that is why he compliments and and praises people in the Bible who are obedient. Finally, fifth, and I think this is it, probably the strongest reason we don't pursue godliness is because we love sin. We treasure it. And so we celebrate being redeemed from the punishment of sin, and yet we gladly remain in its bondage. Because it's hard work. Because it's serious business. Because Christ would tell us that striving to enter the kingdom can sometimes be extreme. You remember the pluck out your eye, cut off your arm if it offends you? It's better to enter the kingdom blind with one arm than to not enter the kingdom. And we just don't take it nearly that seriously. And so it's more like, I enjoy my sin, I'll manage who knows, or, or I'll figure it out. And it's not like I don't truly love God and I worship, but I really treasure, I really delight in this sin. And even if I feel guilty right after, I'm not taking the necessary steps, getting the necessary accountability, doing what's necessary to kill that sin in my life. Yes, by grace, by the Spirit. But there are so many texts that talk about working out, of taking heed, of making no room. We are called to godliness and to righteous living. 
as part of God's design for his church. Obedience is possible. It's commanded. It is possible. We see this in a lot of other passages. Ephesians is full of it, of Christ dying to present us blameless and holy, of Christ laboring to present us before the Lord without blemish and without spot. J.C. Ryle, uh, bishop, bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, says this, We must be holy because this is one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. Jesus is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. My fear is that we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ saved us from. We will give little thought and make little effort concerning all that Christ saved us to. So as we close then, what is the godly life? You can see it there. They're pretty self-explanatory in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It begins with getting rid of the garbage that's there. Ungodliness is just the idea of without God. Do you make decisions and choices as if you were living life without God? And worldly passions, that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things that steal our affection away from Christ, that steal our hope. And in its place, we live self-controlled, upright or righteous, and godly lives in the present age. That's what Christ came to create in us. That's the design of the gospel self-controlled, that we're not, that, that it's temperate, that our, our lives aren't excessive. Upright, that we are going after those things that we know are righteous and holy. And godly lives in this present age. Here's a little soapbox, just for a second. Sometimes we're like, well, what is that? What are the godly, upright? The scripture is full of it. If you're stuck on, if I go two miles per hour over the speed limit, does that make me unrighteous or righteous? Like, that's not the, or the conversation needs to, to be. <laughs> there are so many other things in life clearly laid out of pursuing obedience to God, of living righteously. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, not to take away the law, that it would have no no rule in our heart, but to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's just Old Testament language. Exodus 19, the um, giving of the laws, he's setting that up. Malachi 3, as coming to the close of the Old Testament, what God is doing. Now we see in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of that as he's creating a people for his own possession who fear him or are zealous for good works. That is what he's doing. Verse 15 is 
why I felt compelled to preach this, teach this is I personally have been spending some time in the pastoral epistles just thinking of what it means for the life of the church, what it means for my life as an elder. Verse 15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You don't get to escape the call for holy living as if that's just a tack on to what we really love and that's gospel accomplishments because part of that accomplishment and design is that you be a godly person awaiting, welcoming, hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction in our heart and our lives. Lord, we know that we will 